Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Well, good morning, everybody. It feels like it has, uh, it feels like it's been a minute since I've been up here, but I am so thankful that uh, I'm here with you this morning to, uh, to sing uh, praises to God and to dive into His Word together. Uh, and uh, if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Michael Badger. I'm one of the elders here at uh, Redeemer Church. Uh, and you got to forgive me, my, my sinuses are rebelling against me, so there might be a few sniffies throughout the, uh, throughout the sermon. Um, but, uh, but again, I'm so thankful to have you with us as we dive back into, uh, into God's Word. And we are about halfway through the second chapter, as you've seen, of the book of Hebrews. And we're going to be picking up in verse 10 today. And if you haven't been here with us over the last few weeks... Uh, just a, a brief recap, Hebrews is directed uh, probably primarily to Jewish Christians in the early church, but probably not exclusively Jewish Christians, but primarily Jewish Christians in the early church. And these Christians were being tempted to drift away from the faith for various reasons like persecution. And the, uh, the book of Hebrews uh, which may have actually been uh, a sermon that was given and then written down and then distributed, uh, shines the spotlight on Jesus, reminding these early and suffering Christians why he is worthy of holding on to. Now, chapter 1 was really all about lifting Jesus up, showing that he is the great creator and sustainer, that he is the divine Son of God, higher than the angels and seated at the right hand of the Father, crowned in glory, that he is king over everything and worthy of all praise and honor. And chapter 1 was also all about showing us the infinite heights of Christ's greatness. It was all about making us see how, how holy, how set apart He is. But partway through chapter 2, as Pastor Paul preached last week, the, the tone kind of began to change a little bit. And the author, let's call him preacher, because again, this was most likely a sermon, speaks of how this second person of the Trinity for a time was made a little lower than the angels. And he, while not giving up his deity and the mystery of the incarnation, became like you and I. He became human and he even tasted death. And so in verses 9 through 18, really, not just 10, but also 9 through 18, the preacher, instead of looking at how Jesus is, is not really like us in his deity and in his power, uh, he shows us how and why, in concert with the Father and the Holy Spirit, how he chose to identify with us and take on a human nature. Not just that, but also to tell us why that is such good news for us. But please pray with me before we fully dive in. Lord, I am so thankful to be here this morning. Guys, we say so often, there are so many other places that we could be right now. But Lord, I thank you so much that God, that through your providence, Lord, through your sovereignty, you've brought us all here together this morning so that we could focus our minds and our hearts on you. And so Lord, I pray that as we do that this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit 
God just keeps us focused. Lord, helps us remove those things that want to, Lord, fight for our attention this morning. Help us, help us remove those things out of our minds and out of our hearts so that we can fully see what you want us to learn this morning. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit is our guide, God, that it illuminates, that he illuminates scripture to us. Lord, that we put away a lot of our preconceived notions about this passage and just uh, allow your word to speak for itself and your Holy Spirit to, Lord, put it onto our hearts. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, and that is situated uh, right between Philemon and James. And we're actually going to begin by reading in verse 9 so that we can also remember the context as we then read, uh, just kind of starting out with verse 10. So we're going to read verses 9 and 10. And it says, But we see him for a little while made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And so just remember the context. Verse 9 is the context. Really the incarnation is the context. It is of Jesus becoming flesh, taking on a human nature, being made for a time a little lower than angels. That's what's being talked about here. And then <clears throat> the preacher says something a little interesting in verse 10. He says that it was fitting. It was fitting, meaning that it was deeply right, that it was good and consistent with the character of God to do what? That he, referring to God the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Through suffering. Now, there is a lot in this one little verse, but I want to begin with it being fitting or deeply right that God the Father made the founder, Jesus, of our salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the question is, what in the world does that actually mean? What does it mean? How was Jesus made perfect? I mean, wasn't, wasn't he already perfect, right? Since he wasn't only human, but also God I mean, that's what some looking at this passage will, will often think. How could Jesus become perfect? But when looking at this passage, we have to ask an important question. In what way or sense was he made perfect? In what sense was Jesus made perfect? Jesus was, of course, in his divinity, absolutely perfect in all of his ways, and in every single way. And even when he was born with a human nature, he was still perfect in the sense that he was born without sin. And so, in what way did Jesus need to be perfected? Well, you see, on that first Christmas morning, over two millennia ago, at his birth, as a human, he was not yet the perfect sacrifice. He was not yet the perfect sacrifice. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when they kind of convened together to make the plan to save a people for themselves before the earth was even formed, did not decide that Jesus would die as soon as he was born as an infant. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about why? 
In fact, the, the plan was actually the exact opposite. When King Herod threatened the life of Jesus by ordering the death of all young boys aged two and under in Bethlehem, an angel was sent to warn Joseph, and, and Joseph took Mary and Jesus, and he fled to Egypt until it was safe. And so Jesus dying as an infant or as a child was, was not part of the plan at all. But, but, but why? Why couldn't Jesus just simply be born and then be the sacrifice? Just get it all over with at the very beginning, right? It would have saved a lot of paper in the New Testament. <laughs> and the answer, other than the horrific thought of child sacrifice, is that he was not yet, as an infant, the perfect sacrifice. He had yet to be perfected in that sense. And as a baby, as a young child, he had not been perfected into the perfect sacrifice in, in at least two different ways. And the first is that as a child, he had not yet obeyed every single law and command of God as a human. He had not yet done that. And this was absolutely necessary for our salvation. And Romans 5.19 explains why. It says, For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners. And so through the disobedience of Adam, this is what this is saying, through the disobedience of Adam, we all fell into sin, right? Every human who has ever lived has had a heart that was corrupted with, with sin and idolatry and, and all sorts of wickedness. Humanity's natural state is, is not one of, of general goodness, but rather it is one of disobedience towards God. That's our, that's our natural heart posture. So by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But then it says, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, I love this verse. Because does it say that, that by your obedience, or, or maybe even by the obedience of many, that you will be made righteous? No, not at all. Because that would be impossible. Because again, we are naturally sinful and naturally disobedient. Or disobedient. But it is by the obedience of just one. Just one. By the obedience of Jesus that many will be made perfect. And friends, you can never be righteous enough on your own to come into relationship with God. Despite what this world will tell you. You can't. It isn't possible. That's why we needed Jesus to take on flesh, to, to live as one of us, so that He could obey God perfectly where we disobeyed. He had to succeed where we failed. And this was critical because the plan of Jesus on the cross was a plan in which a great exchange was to take place. On the cross, Jesus took on all of the guilt and condemnation of our disobedience and gave to us all of the credit for His obedience and righteousness. Isn't that amazing? Friends, that means every act of disobedience that you have ever done, will ever do, has been taken and replaced with every act of perfect obedience that Jesus accomplished. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that exchange so, so one-sided too? But it's amazing. 
That's the great exchange that happened on the cross for everyone who trusts in Jesus. He takes our sin, he nails them to the cross, and then scripture says that he drapes over us his own perfect righteousness like a bright and shining robe. How incredible is that? How wonderful is that? And this is why, by the way, that Christianity can't simply be true for some while, while other religions are true for others. It is fundamentally different from all other religions. Jesus says that you cannot be good enough to enter into paradise because of the core of who you are is sinfully sick. This is why Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name under heaven through which man can be saved. None. Not a single other name can save your soul. You must have the perfect life of Jesus credited to you for salvation. And that only comes through faith in Him alone. So, He was made into the perfect sacrifice that we desperately needed through His perfect obedience. But that wasn't the only way. He was also, as verse 10 says in our passage this morning, made perfect through what? Peace? Suffering. The plan wasn't just for Jesus to come and live as a human in perfect obedience and to do so in a quiet and peaceful and pain-free kind of way. Not at all. But as the prophecy in Isaiah 53 states, it was planned or ordained from the beginning of time that he would come to be a suffering servant. A suffering servant. But why was the suffering necessary? Why was it, as verse 10 says, why was it fitting? Why was it deeply right that Jesus not just live in perfect obedience as a human, but, but also that he had to suffer? And jumping ahead a little bit, verses 17 and 18 actually kind of give us the answer. It says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, meaning him taking on a human nature, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, which just means appeasement, for the sins of the people. Look at the first part of that verse again. It says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. You see, friends, it was exceedingly good and fitting that Jesus came to suffer because he didn't just want to be our Savior. I mean, he could have, he could have saved us, right? He could have saved us and then still be, be aloof. He could have saved us and been relationally distant and, and, and cold. But instead, He became like us in every way, even experiencing suffering like we experience. Also that He could become the perfect, merciful, and faithful high priest. Now remember, a high priest in ancient Israel served as the go-between for the, the people of God and God. But now Jesus serves as our go-between. And He is the greatest high priest because He is God Himself, but also because He knows what it is to be like us. He knows what it is to suffer. Friends, He, he knows loss and loneliness. 
And he knows rejection and physical pain. He knows what it's like to have your family think you're crazy and to be betrayed by those closest to you. I mean, he knows extreme hunger and thirst. And friends, he even knows what it is like to face death. He knows what it means to suffer. And so when we cry out to him in our own suffering, we aren't crying out to someone who either doesn't care or can't relate. But we are crying out to someone who knows to the very roots of what we are going through. We are crying out to our sympathetic high priest who is your present help in every time of need. Verse 18 continues with telling us of how Jesus relates to our suffering by saying, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now personally, I almost want to cry reading this verse, to be honest with you. And we all know what it means to be tempted, even if our temptations kind of come in different flavors, right? Some are tempted more by lust or greed or, or envy. Others are tempted by, by pride or anger. Others are tempted by uh, other addictions of, of other sorts. And the list goes on. And for many of us, it's just a combination of all of those. And Jesus himself faced temptations of all sorts. And it's my belief that he faced them more intensely than anyone else could ever imagine. But where we fell and do fall to temptation, he never did. Yet again, he succeeded perfectly where we failed. And that's what Hebrews 4.15, kind of jumping forward in the book a little bit, actually highlights. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. In every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And man, friends, this is such good news because since he was tempted like us, and because he loves us, and sympathizes with us. He is able to help us when we're being tempted. And friends, don't, don't write this verse off. I feel like this is one of those verses that we can look at and just kind of breeze past to get to something more, more meatier, maybe. But don't write this verse off. Really, really think what it means for you. If you're a believer in Christ, think what this actually means for you here and now. Because this verse means, believer, that though you are tempted now, and in whatever way that temptation is presenting itself to you, you're falling to it, right? You're falling into sin is not a foregone conclusion. Do you understand that? It is not a foregone conclusion. And I don't care if you are an addict to any vice or whatever it may be, there is freedom from every single temptation in Jesus Christ. There is hope. There is hope. Never look at a sinful temptation of yours that you, that you feel like you will never overcome and, and think to yourself, well, this is just my lot in life. Right? I will never be free from falling to this temptation. Friends, that is unbiblical thinking. That is unbiblical thinking. Biblical thinking is this. I may be tempted and tried by this, by whatever it may be, but Christ Jesus died 
to break me free from the chains of sin. And he became like me to be tempted like me so that I could cry out to him knowing that he can deliver me from this. That is biblical thinking. That is biblical thinking. That is the hope that we have in Christ Jesus in our temptations. This is exactly what 1 Corinthians 10.13 says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Friends, you are not unique in your temptations. I think that's often what the devil wants us to believe, right? When we're suffering from a temptation, he wants us to believe that we're, we're alone in that. We're the only Christian in history that has ever suffered with that particular temptation. Well, friends, that is a lie. You do not face a temptation now that has not been faced by many Christians in the past and in the present. But whatever temptation you do face in your life, God's Word says that it is not beyond your ability to overcome. Why? Because Jesus always provides an escape. Now that escape could look a variety of different ways. You know, it could be prayer, and it's always prayer. That's one. It could be opening up your Bible. It could be reaching out to a brother or sister in the time of temptation. It could be avoiding going to particular places or a combination of of all of those things. But whatever it may be, Jesus will provide it to you and give you that help. But also know that there's grace, right? Also know that there's grace. He will and has already forgiven you if you do fall. But remember that though we will never be without sin until the day that we die or until Christ comes back, we can, through His help, gain victories over temptations day by day. Now I also don't want you to forget the ultimate reason that He did all of this, why He took on flesh and lived the perfect life and suffered and died for us. Going to back, back to verse 10, it was to bring many sons to glory. Many sons to glory. Which you, if you are a believer in this room, even if you're a man or a woman, that includes you. If you're a believer in this room, that includes you. And He is bringing you into the glory that He now enjoys at the right hand of the Father. Verse 10 calls Jesus the founder of our salvation. And the word here can actually be translated as pioneer or or even captain. Pioneer or captain. And the picture I believe that this preacher is trying to convey is that of Jesus, our captain of salvation, who leads his people on the way to glory, which awaits us on the other side of suffering. He is our forerunner who showed us what it means to suffer well in this world marred by sin, who provided our salvation and blazed the trail to glory, that that Hebrews 2.8 glory that he will soon share with us. If you're a believer in this room, no matter your current suffering, this verse is meant to bring you hope and peace. It's meant to bring you hope and peace. Just as it was with Jesus, your current suffering is not going to last. 
It's not going to last. It will pass away because, friends, you are destined for glory. We're destined for glory. Isn't that amazing? Our, our, our lot in life right here and now will soon, will soon pass away. No matter what heartache that you're going through right now, no matter what kind of suffering that you're experiencing, whether it be, whether it be emotional or spiritual or physical, all of it will soon just be wiped away because that's not the end for you. The end for you is glory. It's glory that you get to share in with your Lord and Savior. So hold tight to Jesus. Hold tight to him. So Jesus identified with us in becoming truly human. But he took on a human nature and he suffered even unto death. But verses 11 through 13 seek to actually deepen the bond even more, if if that's even possible, but it is because we read about it. But verses 11 through 13 seek to deepen the bond that Jesus made with us by saying this, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now the word sanctification means essentially to look more and more like Christ. And this is the goal of of every single Christian life. If you're wondering what God's will for you in this life, it is to be sanctified. And when you place your faith in Jesus, He, through the Holy Spirit, begins a work of sanctification in you, conforming your life to look like His. And friends, it is a lifelong process. It's not something that happens overnight. And so He is the sanctifier, and we are who are being sanctified. We are the ones being sanctified. Now, when the preacher says that Christians and Jesus have the same uh, source, scholars are are kind of somewhat split uh, when it comes to the meaning of this. Some say he is speaking to the shared humanity between he and believers, while others say that it is a reference to sharing the same heavenly Father. Now, don't don't misunderstand that. Jesus was not created. But he was sent by the Father, and his relationship to him is that of a father and son. And so believers in Jesus share in that relationship with God the Father. Now, either way, the meaning is the same in that the preacher is telling us of our deep bond that we have with Christ. So deep, in fact, that Jesus calls us his brothers. And again, this includes women as well. We are all his brothers. He is our loving elder brother to whom we have the deepest of family bonds with. And Jesus is saying to us, as one commentator puts it, I am your brother. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What is mine? As the eternal Son, born a man who lived and died for the sins of mankind and who rose bodily in the power of the Holy Spirit, what is mine and all that I have achieved as God's beloved Son now belongs to you. I share my eternal inheritance with you. You belong to me and I belong to you. My Father is your Father. How amazing is that? That is wonderful. To make it even sweeter, friends, and again, really hang on to this part, but he's not ashamed of us. Isn't that incredible? He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Have you ever met someone who had a family member who that they were were just completely embarrassed by? Right? 
Even to the point where they didn't even want to claim them as their, as their sibling or aunt or uncle or, or mother or father. You know, maybe you were that family member. Yeah? But look at our elder brother's heart for us. Look at his heart for us. He is not ashamed of us. I take so much joy from this because if you're like me, then you have plenty to be ashamed of. You've been ashamed of yourself, ashamed of who you were before Christ, ashamed of the sins that still tempt you now, ashamed that you fell to those sins yesterday. Maybe so ashamed that you felt like you couldn't even approach God in prayer or approach Him by opening up your Bibles. But Jesus loved you so much that He suffered the brutal death on a device of torture for you so that you can be, be cleansed from all of that, so that you could be forgiven. And Christian, He doesn't regret it for an instant. He doesn't regret dying for you for a single moment. You sure it grieves Him when you sin, but He will never be ashamed of you. He will never be ashamed to claim you as His own brother or sister. In speaking to this, Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, they, meaning believers, are poor. They are despised. They are persecuted. What is worse, they are imperfect and faulty, often sorrowful, cast down, condemning themselves, groaning at the mercy seat. Yet, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. There is such a unity between the believer, be he in what sorrow he may, and the Christ, be he in what glory he may, that he is never ashamed to own the close relationship between them. Just let the beautiful reality of that just wash over you for a second. He is never ashamed to own the close relationship between he and yourself. Never. Never. We were even told in verse 12, which is a quote from Psalm 22, that he will not only not be ashamed of us, and that he will not only actually preach the Father to us, to our hearts, but that he will lead us and join us in praising and giving glory and honor to God the Father. He is our ultimate worship leader. And far from being ashamed and wanting to push us away, he wants, to, he wants to worship with us and lead us into worshiping God the Father alongside of us. And I feel like this should just completely change the way that we should behave and, and act and think when we do fall into sin. Because what do we, what do we often do? Think back to Adam and Eve. When we, when we fall into some sort of sinful temptation, we, we try to hide, right? We try, to, we try to run away from God because we're too ashamed to look at His face. We're too ashamed to, to confront our, our Savior. But that is not His heart towards us at all. He wants us to come to Him, especially in those times where we need Him the most. When we need that forgiveness, when we need that comfort. 
And he wants to lead us back into praising God and giving him glory and worshiping him over the, the sinfulness and the, the sinful temptations of our hearts. He wants to lead us in that worship. And verse 13 simply continues to drive home Jesus is identifying with us by quoting from Isaiah 18, or sorry, Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. Where he says, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And looking at that, it's kind of confusing as to, as to what is actually being said there and what it actually means. But these verses are likely referring to how Jesus, too, had to trust uh, in the Father during his ministry on earth like we do. Uh, we, the children, God the Father has given to him to save. So it's just, again, just bringing that relationship back into focus. So allow me to summarize quickly what we have discovered so far. Jesus took on flesh to become like us in every way so that he could become the perfect sacrifice and the perfect high priest so that he could die on the cross to save us from our sins and become our sympathetic help in our time of need so that we could share in his glory as his brothers and sisters. That sound like a pretty good summary so far? Okay, good. Now verse 14 says that among all the under, other uh, wonderful things that Jesus accomplished on the cross is that in his death he defeated the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now here we kind of run into another head-scratcher of a verse, right? What does it mean that the devil has the power of death? Well, this could be understood in, again, at least two different ways, and I think that we're actually meant to understand it in both ways. The first is that the devil is called the accuser in Revelation 12.10, right? It's called the accuser. And this is because one of the devil's favorite pastimes is to accuse believers and unbelievers alike of the sins that they are guilty of. He loves to remind unbelievers of their shortcomings, of their failures, and to fill them with dread and fear of the consequences of those things, namely death and hell. Now with believers, he loves to do the exact same thing, but just with a little bit of a twist, right? He wants to convince you that maybe you're not truly forgiven. Maybe your past self is a little too sinful and that Jesus couldn't really forgive you of all those things. He'll try to convince you that maybe you aren't being a good enough Christian and therefore your salvation is uncertain. Or, or maybe all this stuff is just kind of a, a myth after all and so you should still be afraid of what's coming to you in death. The devil loves to use the reality of death as a weapon to strike fear into our hearts. And so that's, that's one meaning of the devil having the power of death. But another is that the devil is allowed by God in his sovereignty in some instances to bring about death. And if you have a hard time believing that, then you're going to have a hard time reading the book of Job, right? In Job 1, we clearly see God allowing the devil to take life. So God has granted the devil some modicum of power in regards to death. Now, I believe what the preacher in Hebrews is referring to in this passage is not A or B, but actually C, all of the above. And that's kind of on the outset terrifying, right? That's, that's, that's terrifying. That the enemy has the power of death in, in whatever capacity is bad news. Or at least it would be, right? If not for what we learn in verse 14. 
Let's read it again because this right here needs to be our posture when it comes to the devil and demons and spiritual warfare. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, real quick, this passage does not say that the devil has been completely dealt with now fully, fully. We see that in Paul's words to Timothy when he tells him that the devil is still active, even after the cross, prowling like a lion ready to devour. But friends, what this passage does say is that by the cross, the devil has been given a death blow. He's been given a death blow. Because of the cross, the fate of Satan and his demons has been sealed, and the primary weapon the devil had to use against us, Christian, has been rendered utterly powerless. Powerless. And the reason is because everything the enemy could accuse you of, all of your failures and sins that meant you were headed to hell when death came knocking, was taken care of by Christ on the cross. This is why the preacher continues in verse 15, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and then verse 15 and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. And again, the devil has been given a death blow that will see the final conclusion when Christ comes back, when the devil and the rest of the demons are cast into the lake of fire. But right now, believer, because of the incarnation of Christ, because of His sin-forgiving uh, work on the cross, because of His own death, you have been freed. You have been set free. You have been utterly liberated from the only true weapon the enemy had to use against you, the fear of death. You have been set free from having to be enslaved to the fear of death because of what verse 17 says. Because he made propitiation, which again means appeasement, because his sacrifice appeased the wrath of God. So therefore, you no longer have to fear death. And Christians are actually the only people on the planet who have no cause to fear death, right? Of all the people on earth, if there is a people that should not fear death, it is you. Why? Man, what, is, what does John 3.16 say? I, I hear some whisperings of it. I, I, I'm going to just assume you all know it. Those who believe in Jesus are given everlasting life. Right? That's the summary. Those who believe in Jesus are given everlasting life. And so, friends, the devil has been robbed. He's been utterly robbed. He and death no longer hold us in chains of fear. Those chains have been broken. They've been completely broken. And we know that death is not the end for the believer. Far from it. And after death comes glory. It comes glory forevermore. After death comes new heavens and new earth and resurrected glorified bodies and everything else that comes with our shared inheritance with our elder brother, with our Savior and King Jesus. And friends, I know I need to chill out on the Spurgeon quotes. I use them way too often. But indulge me this one last time. And I think we got this one up on the, on the screen too. And this is one of the most beautiful quotes I think I've ever heard. 
He says the devil is still alive, but his power in this world has received its death blow. Jesus Christ has trodden on the old serpent's head, and to the Christian, in the matter of death, the devil is completely destroyed, for he that believes in Christ shall never die. Death seemed to be all black and evil like Satan himself, something into which he had put his most venomous sting. But now, to believers in Jesus, death is a messenger from our Father in heaven calling us home to him. Not a dark angel striking terror to our hearts, but one who is exceeding bright and fair, coming to bid us fly away to the realms of light and love. Friends, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And a few other things I had to say, but I think we should just leave it there with a hope that we have in Christ. And if you do, if you don't have this hope, you don't share in that. And I invite you to come and partake. Place your faith in Christ. Repent of your sin. And you too can have that hope. And you can call Christ your brother. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I am so filled with hope. Lord, even, even now, as a believer, Lord, death can still come as a cause of fear. But God, I'm so thankful that you sent your son to do away with that fear. God, I am so thankful, Lord, that God, this life now, Lord, it's just a, a blip on the radar when it comes to the eternity that we are going to spend just basking in your presence. And God, Lord, we, we fail you so many times. Lord, we fall to sin and temptation so often. So often that we are often ashamed of ourselves. But God, you say that you are never ashamed to call us your brothers, to call us your sisters. So Lord, I thank you so much for that. And Lord, we love you. Lord, help us love you more tomorrow than we, than we do today and more the next day and the next day. I pray this in your son's holy and precious name. Amen.